Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is our old buddy, Charles Sauer. He is a libertarian and economist, and he is the president of the Market Institute in Washington, D.C., which is where I got to know Charles. Marketinstitute.org is the website. He's also the author of a new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Charles, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on. And I should say your Skype handle, correct me if I've got this wrong, is charles.d.sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Do I have that right? That is correct. Cool. Okay. So you don't like socialism, I take it. And I'm just wondering what part of American socialism is it that you think that we should be getting rid of? Is it Social Security? Is it Medicare? Is it disability insurance? These are all socialist programs. Is it subsidies to green companies? Is it subsidies to the fossil fuel industry? Do you think we shouldn't be doing away with the student debt? You want to get rid of our socialist police or our socialist fire departments or our socialist public schools? Where do we begin? building this libertarian paradise that you envision, Charles? Well, I think that my answer to that is yes. We can get rid of all of that. But I think that you, you do ask the important question. It's where do we begin? Because if you got rid of all of that overnight, it's going to be chaos. And I think that even when you get to the end, most libertarians, most economists will agree that things like the police and firemen are a good thing and they're in a good, efficient use of government. So you, you like a little socialism? To, maybe you can say that. I'll tell you what I do like. I do like all of the goals of socialism, and I think that that's why you and I get along. We think that people should be as good off as they can be. We're not going to walk past somebody that's broke on the street and kick them. So we both agree that we want to reach our hands out and help them up. Where I disagree with socialism is that I don't believe in the dream world that you hold all economics static when you just give away other people's money. I believe that there are dynamic effects. When you take somebody's money away, that they change their actions and therefore the socialist economy is a dream world that doesn't exist. So I believe in capitalism to help people. I believe in capitalism to help people up. And I think that uh, we see that that is the better way. But socialists, you know, government gets too big. We saw Elizabeth Warren, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking too long, but Elizabeth Warren good. the other night on the debate stage said uh, that she wanted the government to take over mining. And then when pushed on a follow-up question, quickly made an exemption for a metal that was needed. And that was the way, that's the way lobbying works. And that's the way socialism works. You just switch the power from a capitalist market where demand changes things to a government controlled market where lobbying and cronyism changes things. And so I would much rather have a market dictate uh, exemptions. So uh, you make a good point. When people take away your money, it does change your behavior. I remember back in the 1970s, I had an herbal tea company in East Lansing, Michigan, or in Okemos, Michigan. And we had a couple of really, really good years before Celestial Seasonings ate our lunch. And, and, and I was making a pile of money. And I was, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And I remember our CPA sitting me down 
along with Louise and my business partner, Terry O'Connor, and saying, you know, you guys are pushing up against a 50% tax income tax bracket. It is crazy for you to keep taking money out of this company and giving that much of it to the government. I would suggest that you put this money back into your business. And we developed a whole brand new product line, which allowed the company to survive another couple of years. And we gave all of our employees health care. We gave people raises. I mean, you know, it did change our behavior. And it changed the behavior of CEOs all over America. The top tax rate at that point in time was 74%. And I mean, this was before Reagan came into office. And you could get there fairly quickly. And so what happened was the average CEO in America took only 30 times what the lowest paid employee does. Now you've got CEOs in the banking industry taking 100,000 times what their lowest paid employees are, in the pharmaceutical industry taking 10,000 times what their lowest paid employees are, in the health insurance industry taking 10 to 70,000 times what their lowest paid employers are taking. I think that we should have policies that cause people to behave in ways that are good for business. Don't you, Charles? Well, here's the thing. You're only telling half the story because, yeah, I do think we should have policies that have employers work in the most efficient way. And the most efficient way is to treat their employers right. But the fact is, is when you go back to the tax regime that you were talking about, we had people taking tax breaks for lunches with their spouses. We had people taking tax do. breaks for a lot of things. So, no, you can't take you only get half of your meal deduction and I don't believe it includes spouses. There's lots of things that were going on back then. So the 30 times number is, again, why I don't like socialism, because lobbyists came in and lobbied for these tax breaks based on cronyism, like, hey, I need to hide my money someplace. And they were given tax exemptions. So, yes, you're right. When you look at the top numbers, they were only making 30 times. But when you peel back the onion, you start seeing that we were in the exact same place, if not worse, than where we are now, because no, right that's not now true. we can at least more than, see the numbers. No, in 1980, Charles, more than 60% of Americans were solidly in the middle class. We dropped below 50% last year. We have not had basically an income increase since 1980, whereas from 1930 until 1980, during that four-decade period, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, five-decade period, um, during that period of time, we saw the economy growing faster than it has since Reaganism began. We saw the average wage of working people grow faster, and, and in fact, it was growing faster than it was for the top 1%. The wages were tracking productivity right up until 1980, and then wages Again, went flat and you're, productivity you're continued to go up. If you look at numbers with a little spyglass and a little people, which is what you have to do to make socialism work, then it, your numbers are correct. But the fact is, is if you look at the quality of life for all income brackets, the quality of life is going up because innovation's going up, competition's going so. up, TV prices have come down, housing prices are uh, reasonable again. <laughs> no, <laughs> they are exploding no, not, again. <laughs> but we had in the in the 19 uh, right before uh, 2008, uh, housing was increasing at dramatic rates. Uh, so even after we came down, we well, that's still all post-Reaganism. I mean, you go back um, pre-Reaganism, you know, when we had reasonable interest rates and reasonable taxes, and the cost of housing was growing at basically the rate of of, of uh, GDP growth and inflation. You know, since then the we've seen the cost of housing, housing explode. You've got you've got over forty percent of Americans spending more than fifty percent of their income on housing right now. That was definitely not the case in nineteen eighty. And if you base that on your arguments, that shouldn't be happening. This that should be like China building fake cities. But the fact is, is no, more I'm not, people I'm have not money that can buy houses, Charles. Tom. Charles, no, I'm not. No, no, no. So but, let me, here's the fundamental question. No, but that's question. what the numbers I are using. Give you, the numbers are using. Yeah, I can give you that. examples. The numbers are using. I can give you examples of democratic socialism actually working and producing good, positive results. And I, and I know that you, you may disagree with, with how it works, but you understand you know, I mean, you've traveled around the world. People in Denmark are happy. They've got, you know, with democratic socialism, they've got free education, they've got free health care, they've got free child care, they got a year off, you know, for, for maternity leaves and paternity leaves and things like that. That is also true of Norway. That's also true of Sweden. It's also true of Denmark. It's also true of France and Germany. And, uh, you know, basically the only country in Europe that's been kneecapped since the 1980s is the United Kingdom. And they're having many of the same problems we are. So, I can point to lots and lots of examples where Bernie Sanders-style democratic socialism, and in all those cases, by the way, they're going farther than what Bernie is suggesting right now, um, actually has produced a positive result. Can you point to any country in the world 
where your libertarianism, where there is no social security, it's just private savings, where there is no Medicare or Medicaid, it's you, 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 you negotiate with a private health insurance company, where there is no public education, you go to school if your parents can, pay, can afford to pay for it. Can you point to any country in the world where your form of libertarianism has been tried and succeeded? Well, look, first off, you're wrong by pointing at those countries and saying that that's the case, because when you poll those countries, most of them say it's the capitalist portions of their economy that are what make it. I'm not disputing that. But yeah, but that's not libertarianism. That's regulated capitalism. No, no. You just pointed it. You just pointed at what, 10 places and said that that's proof that what what you believe works and democratic socialism which includes highly regulated capitalism yes can you point to any country in the world where you have unregulated capitalism and functionally no social safety net i'll give you the police and fire you agree with me on that any country in the world that socialism i don't get full capitalism what we look is that in the united states we have a very uh, uh a reasonably capitalist society and we get drugs 12 18 24 months ahead of other countries because the research and development is done here because there's uh intellectual property is protected um because we have uh, a, a good research and development i'm not talking about um, drugs i'm arm. talking about any country in the world where I'm libertarianism has been tried well, and actually works Innovation happens because of capitalism. Innovation happens because Most, of libertarianism. The majority of drugs in the United States are developed a, by the National Institutes of Health, Charles. The, the only ones that are actually, developed by the drug companies are where they're tweaking an existing molecule to, to extend their patent. And that's BS, that's and not, you know it too. That's, not, that's absolutely not true, and we've actually talked about that. Because it, what we look at is they do basic research, but before you and your regulations would let somebody actually take it in the market, there's a lot of things, steps that have to take place. As you know, because you've called for regulations like that. Okay. The fact is, is that research and development happens here because we have a capitalist society. Research and development I'm, I'm doesn't not, happen I am in not, democratically I'm not trying to trash places. capitalism. Charles, forgive my interrupting, but if Bernie Sanders becomes president, what kind of horror show are you predicting? You know, you and I have talked about Bernie. I actually like Bernie. Again, him and I agree with the end goal. We just don't agree on how to get there. And the fact is, is that Bernie Sanders has proven to work with people across uh, the party aisles. Uh, Again, he's a good guy. I don't agree with how he wants to get places, but it's not going to be a horror show. He believes in what he believes, and he's believed in it for a long time, and he tells the truth when he's out on the campaign stage. Wow. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. And that is why we're friends, Charles. Charles Sauer is the uh, president of the Market Institute in Washington, D.C. He's an economist and libertarian. And uh, his new book is called Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. It's a fascinating read. Marketinstitute.org is the website. His uh, Twitter handle is Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Oh, that was Skype. I'm sorry. I gave the wrong address. Charles Sauer is his Twitter handle. Charles, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. We'll continue this conversation, and I want to get into a discussion about the coronavirus. We'll do that, so stick around. Erica in uh, Seattle is on KBCS. Hey, Erica, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. So I'm switching the topic. And I just wanted to reference the guy who was talking about the socialism scare and right. how the younger generation, the iGeners, millennials are voting or are polling towards socialism. And I just want to say that those people are the, these young people are the future of the country and they should not be neglected. And basically, this is a wake up call. Mm-hmm. And they're letting everyone know that they're not happy with the status quo and that things have to change. And these are the people that are the future of the country and the politicians need to be listening to them. I agree. And not brushing them off. I absolutely agree. And I think that's that's very well said. I totally agree. And frankly, I don't think any of these people are calling for communism. It's red baiting. It's uh, look under your bed and be afraid. Erica, thank you. Well said. Donna in uh, Groveland, California. Hey, Donna, thank you for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Thank you, Tom, for having such a valuable program. I really appreciate it. We do our best. Uh, I, ju- I, I just called to make a short statement. I have two, had two friends from Chile that came here 
after what happened there in the 1970s. And when Allende, when he was shot and killed, savage capitalism was imposed on the population by way of disappearing people, murder, and torture. All of this were neoliberal policies. It was the destruction of their social security system and the privatization of their education, just to name a few things. That was the libertarian experiment, by the way. I didn't didn't want to shove that down Charles's throat, but you know, that the Chicago school went down. And this is Milton Friedman who, who was pushing this stuff. Oh, he was very instrumental in the destruction. Yes. And, and yet I never hear condemnation of the Pinochet regime from our libertarian and ne- neoliberal figures in this country. What happened to those people? Well, they're, they're sort of saying the same thing about Pinochet that I would say about Castro, which is, you know, he did some good things, but he was essentially a bad guy. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm, I'm hard pressed to see anything good that Pinochet did I, yeah, for I, I'm Chile. With you. Yeah, well, but uh, from a libertarian point of view, he, he privatized Social Security, he killed off the public schools, he, he ended, uh, you know, uh, what little they had of a, the equivalent of a Medicare program. I mean, he, he tried to take that country into a free market economy. The people protested. Over 3,000 of them were taken up in helicopters and dropped, you know, from 3,000 right. feet and killed. Um, they were, their bodies were buried in the soccer stadium. I mean, it was a horror show, and, and that's what you've got to do if you want to take socialism away from people. If you want to take their social security away, they're going to get seriously pissed off and they're going to protest. My friend's brother was in one of their uh, detention camps. The food was served deliberately with maggots and whatnot in the food. His brother developed an aversion to eating. He was, when I met him, he was profoundly skinny. Uh, My friend Federico said, don't be alarmed. This is why he's so skinny and he hasn't been able to eat normally since. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, it's shocking that your home can be stolen this easily. That's the brutal lesson Deborah learned when thieves found her home's title online, forged it, and literally took ownership of her home. In an instant, thieves legally owned Deborah's home. She got evicted and spent a fortune in legal fees trying to get it back. You know, the FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes, and you do not want to be next. That's why I urge you to protect the online title to your home with Home Title Lock. You know, the legal documents to our homes are kept online where thieves hunt them. They forge the documents stating you sold your home. Then they borrow against your home and stick you with the payments. And no insurance or bank protects you. Home Title Lock does. You could already be a victim of title fraud and not know it. Find out. Register your home at HomeTitleLock.com and enter WATCH for one month of free protection. Again, enter WATCH for one month free at HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. So how do you build a middle class? This is ultimately the question. This was my debate with Charles Sauer, the libertarian economist. Basically, he's saying that if you want to have a middle class, because at the very end, I I said, what do you think about Bernie? And he said, you know, Bernie, I like Bernie. Bernie tells the truth. And, you know, I disagree with how he wants to get to where he wants to go. But we both want everybody in this country to have health care. And we both want all of our kids to get a good education. And we both want, you know, and and I know that to be true of Charles, by the way, because I know Charles. I I got to know Charles quite well when we lived in D.C. And he's one of a small handful of conservatives that I consider friends. Julio Rivera is another one who comes on this show and defends Donald Trump. But Julio is a good and decent guy, even though he's a little nutty when it comes to politics. But the question is, how do you build a strong middle class? And if we look at history... What we find is that whenever we've slid into laissez-faire capitalism, unregulated capitalism, raw, naked, brutal capitalism, whenever we slide into that, as we did in in the period from the 1880s until 1900, and as we did in the period from 1920 to 1930, and as we did in the period from 1980 to today, whenever we slide into laissez-faire capitalism, what we end up with is a reduction in the middle class, a kneecapping of the middle class, a stealing of the wealth of the middle class and working people below the middle class, and a transfer of that wealth to the very top, typically the top 1%, certainly the top 5%. It's as predictable as, you know, the sun comes up every morning. 
And you can look all over the world. And what you see is that when you have regulated capitalism, heavily regulated capitalism, where people cannot exploit uh, other people, where people can't, where it's harder to exploit workers, where it's harder to exploit customers, where there's actual competition. And competition is the consequence of the rules of the game of capitalism being defined in a way that promotes cap, uh, competition. Competition is a good thing. But we're now to the point where we have the highest airline prices in the world because we're down to basically four major airlines. We have the highest cell phone service prices in the world. The average family in the United States spends around 80, between 80 and $100 a month for cell phone service for the family. In France, you can get cell phone service for five bucks a month. Why? Because there's 100 different companies offering cell phone service. Uh, here in the United States, internet service. The average uh, cost of internet service in the United States is in the $70 range. But in France, and, and by the way, that's, that's for slow internet service. That's like, you know, for 10 MIPS down and one MIP up, or maybe 50 MIPS down and, and five or 10 MIPS up. For 100 MIPS in both directions in France, you can get internet service for $15, $20. And it's not just France, by the way. It's all, you know, it's, it's South Korea, it's Japan, it's all, all the rest of the European countries. I just use France as an example because there have been several good pieces written about this. And Thomas Piketty, who is a French economist, has been writing about this a lot lately. We don't have competition in the United States anymore. We have monopoly. That's why, I, my, as I mentioned earlier, my next book, uh, which will be out this fall, and it's available for pre-order right now, shameless plug, is, is the hidden history of monopoly and the destruction of the American middle class and small business. And that's exactly what's going on. So if we want to have a strong middle class, we need to, number one, challenge the monopolies. We need to take them on and take them down. Number two, we need to build the power of labor through encouraging unionization. And number three, we need to discourage hoarding of wealth and the theft of wealth through a high tax rate on really genuinely wealthy people, which includes, in my opinion, that you know, a, a property tax like you and I pay on our homes, a wealth tax, should be paid by the billionaires on the money in their money bin. Which is, you know, and all of these things, by the way, are things that uniquely Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders are proposing on the campaign trail. And it's why I'm so pleased that we have, you know, I mean, this is the first time since 1992 that we've had a real progressive running for president. In 92, I think, I think, I think Teddy, Teddy Kennedy uh, tried to take on Bill Clinton. I could be wrong back in 92. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there was a real progressive in that primary. But, uh, you know, we haven't good, seen a good, solid progressive since then on the Democratic side. And we've got two of them now, and I, I'm just delighted. And these are people who will build movements and who do have history behind them. Not just a personal history and a, and a personal record, but, you know, the history of the United States that shows that when we move toward regulated capitalism, we have better outcomes. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. So strengthening our social safety nets, strengthening labor and strengthening competition. These are all things only government can do. We'll be back. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader. This particular chapter is an excerpt from my book, Threshold. This is from page 312, titled Sociopathic Paychecks. And it starts out with a quote from The Little Prince, 1943. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelled a flower. He has never looked at a star. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man, he is a mushroom. Okay, through the book. Americans have long understood how socially, politically, and economically destabilizing are huge disparities in wealth. For this reason, the U.S. military and the U.S. civil service have built into them systems that ensure that the highest paid federal official, including the president, will never earn more than 20 times the salary of the lowest paid janitor or army private. Most colleges have similar programs in place with the ratios ranging from 10 to 1 to 20 to 1, between the president of the university and the guy who mows the grass. From the 1940s through the 1980s, this was also a general rule of thumb in most of corporate America. When CEOs took more than their fair share, they were restrained by their boards, 
so that the money could be used instead by the company for growth and to open new areas of opportunity. The robber baron J.P. Morgan himself suggested that nobody in a company, including his company, should earn more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Although he exempted stock ownership from that equation, he owned most of the stock. During the greed is good era of the 1980s, something changed. CEO salaries began to explode at the same time that the behavior of multinational corporations began to change. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a mergers and acquisition mania filled the air. And as big companies merged to become bigger, they shed off redundant parts. The result was a series of waves of layoffs as entire communities were decimated, divorce and suicide rates exploded, and America was introduced to the specter of the armed, disgruntled employee. Accompanying the consolidation of wealth and power of these corporations was the very real redefinition of employment, from providing a living wage to people in the community to a variable expense on a profit and loss sheet. Companies that manufactured everything from clothing to television sets discovered that there was a world full of people willing to work for 50 cents an hour or less. Throughout, the American, throughout, throughout America, factories closed and a building boom commenced among the Asian tigers of Taiwan, South Korea, and Thailand. The process has become so complete that of the millions of American flags bought and waved after the trade, World Trade Center disaster, 9-11, most were manufactured in China. Very, very, very few things are still manufactured in the United States outside of the defense industry, weapons. And it wasn't unthinking, unfeeling corporations that took advantage of the changes in the ways the Sherman Antitrust Act and other laws were enforced by Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. administrations. It took a special type of human person. In his manuscript, Toys, War, and Faith, Democracy in Jeopardy!, Major William C. Gladish suggests that this special breed of person is actually a rare commodity and thus highly valuable. He notes that corporate executives make so much money because of simple supply and demand. There are, of course, many people out there with the best education from the best school, raised in upper-class families who know how to play the games of status, corporate intrigue, and power. The labor pool would seem to be quite large, but Gladish points out there's another and more demanding requirement to meet. They must be willing to operate in a runaway economic and financial system that demands the exploitation of humanity and the environment for short-term gain. This is a disturbing contradiction to their children's interest and their own intelligence, education, cultural appreciation, and religious beliefs. It's the second requirement, Gladish notes, that drastically reduces the number of quality candidates for corporations to pick from. Most people in this group are not willing to forsake God, family, and humanity to further corporate interests in a predatory financial system. For the small percentage of people left, the system continues to increase salaries and benefit packages to entice the most qualified and ruthless to detach themselves from humanity and become corporate executives and their hired guns. One of the questions often asked when the subject of CEO pay comes up is, what would a person like William McGuire or Rex Tillerson, the CEOs of United Healthcare and ExxonMobil, respectively, possibly do to justify a $1.7 billion paycheck or a $400 million retirement bonus? It's an interesting question. There's a free market for labor or CEOs. You'd think there'd be a lot of competition for the jobs. And a lot of people competing for the positions would drive down the pay. All the United Healthcare stockholders would have to do to avoid paying more than a billion dollars to McGuire is find somebody to do the same CEO job for a half billion dollars. And all they'd have to do to save even more is find somebody to do the job for a mere hundred million dollars. Or maybe even somebody who'd work the necessary 60-hour weeks for only one million dollars. So why is executive pay so high? I've examined this question with both my psychotherapist hat on and my amateur economist hat on, and only one rational answer presents itself. CEOs in America make as much money as they do because there really is a shortage of well-trained sociopaths. The book is, ultimately, it's from Threshold, but it's in the Tom Hartman reading. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, I, I believe I mentioned it earlier. If not, I think it's worth uh, a little more careful scrutiny and a better riff. If you wanted to be in the South Carolina debate audience, which on a couple of occasions booed Bernie and applauded Bloomberg and Biden, you had to pay between $1,700 and $3,200 for the ticket. That's what it cost to be in the audience. 
So do you think that there were a lot of millennials in that audience? Do you think that there were a lot of working class people in that audience who could just easily write a $1,700 check or a $3,200 check to be in the audience? I don't. You know, when half of American families can't deal with a $400 emergency expense, when two-thirds of American families can't deal with a $1,000 medical expense or emergency expense, I'm guessing that two-thirds of America was not represented in that audience that, you know, required a donation to the South Carolina Democratic Party of $1,700 to $3,200 just to be in the audience. I mean, the first time they booed Bernie, I was scratching my head. I was like, really? Really? And Bernie, what Bernie was saying, you know, they said, you know, well, how dare you say that it was a good thing that Cuba was educating all their people? And Bernie was like, Obama said the same thing. Right? I don't know, Nate, if you can pull that up easily or, or not. Just It'll take a second. Well, just let me know when you got it, and I'll play it. But, you know, Bernie kept trying to make this point, and I said, you know, this is going to come up in the debate, and if the moderators, if ABC News does not play this clip of Obama, they are being disingenuous. They are pretending that this is happening in a vacuum. And all Bernie said was the exact same thing that President Obama said just a few years ago while he was president. And they use as an attack against him. Here it is. This is President Obama. And I, I said this to President Castro in Cuba. I said, look, you've made great progress in educating young people. Every child in Cuba gets a basic education. That's a huge improvement from where it was. Medical care. The life expectancy of Cubans is equivalent to the United States, despite it being a very poor country because they have access to health care. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. But you drive around Havana and this economy is not working. It looks like it did in the 1950s. And so you have to be practical in asking yourself, how can you achieve the goals of equality and inclusion. This is what President Obama said. It's what Bernie Sanders said on 60 Minutes, although Bernie added to it, but the leadership are dictators and we don't support that form of government, communist form of government. Bernie said that right out loud. He's attacked Maduro as a dictator in Venezuela. But first of all, when he tried to answer the question, you know, they asked him the question, do you stand by your thing that education's a good thing? And Bernie said, yes, even in communist countries, it's good to have an education. And then they booed him, these people who paid $1,700 to $3,200 each to be in the audience. And then Bernie said, well, President Obama said the same thing. And everybody, you know, Buttigieg and all, everybody tried to jump in on top of him. And Joe Biden, and Joe Biden was trying to say, oh, he never said any such thing or words to that effect. And they were all trying, they were all talking over Bernie while the audience is booing Bernie. And I'm going... Where did this audience come from? And it wasn't until the second half of the debate that a few people on Twitter had found these local stories out of South Carolina where they were saying, hey, do you want to be in the audience? It'll only cost you $1,700. Literally, the Democratic Party there as a fundraiser was selling these tickets. And then the penny fell for me, and I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Now I understand. <laughs> now I understand. Gary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hey, Gary, what's up? Thanks for taking my call. You know, I started to watch the debate, and it just, you know, just turned into this dog and pony show, you know, totally manipulated by the commentators and the audience that you were talking about. But there are a lot of town hall meetings that you can find on the Internet where there's one candidate facing an audience of real people, and they're asked questions, and they give their positions, and they're much, much, much more informative than these phony debates mm. that are being, you know, projected to us. And I encourage people to search those town hall meetings because they're all over the place. Yeah, I agree with you. The debate was problematic, to say the very least. L in Seattle. Hey, L, we have a little less than a minute. You got a quick question? I do. In fact, you've thrown such a broad net that I'm going to zero in <laughs> on just one topic. Please, will you explain to our voters, your listeners, how, if they are not participating in the provisional process and they're 
registered as independent voters, their vote has, there is a possibility that they can be thrown into a provisional pot and their vote can be discounted. Well, that would be in a primary, and that's going to depend on the state. You've got closed primary states and open primary states, and in the closed primary states, in order to get a ballot that has Democrats on it, you have to be registered as a Democrat or Republicans. On the other hand, because the, the Supreme Court ruled in 2000 that there is no constitutional right to vote, any state can take away your vote basically any way they want, with under any pretense. The typical one being that you've moved. Can't do that with your gun. They can do it with your vote. Listening to the Tom Hartman program. Even here in Oregon, they don't take away your vote here, but they could, but they can't take away your gun. I mean, this is a crazy state of affairs. We'll be back. friends wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus his lively end of the week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. John in Westchester, New York. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'd just like to make a statement that the situation that we're facing now is no better argument for uh, social programs. I mean, not just alone the healthcare system. But I work at uh, Fred's Food Pantry in Peekskill, New York, mm-hmm. and they seem to have—they seem to be gaining people by the numbers for looking for food. And unfortunately, the situation around the world with the play with the uh, the locusts in Africa and everything like that—things are going to start getting a lot tighter. And the, yep. uh, the the people who have and the have-nots are going to be—it's going to be a big gap. Yeah, I agree. And then, and then on top of this, uh, the coronavirus is fixing to go worldwide. I mean, it's already on every continent now, except Antarctica. But it is the time to promote social programs. And uh, spot on. Well said. Thank you very much, Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom. Can I just say first, before I talk about socialism, I think the Democratic candidates ought to just leave Michael Bloomberg alone. Ignore him. Don't respond to him. Don't attack him. Because I'm not so sure that Michael Bloomberg isn't so petulant that if he doesn't get this nomination, he's going to start turning his money against the Democrats. He's already doing it. Yeah, I agree. So. Well, he's doing it against Bernie right now, and Bernie's you know the most likely nominee. So yes, I agree with you. And and I and just giving him the cold, totally giving him the cold shoulder, and and behaving like who is this guy? What's he doing here? That would that would be a very uh, yeah, effective just, strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't attack him like Elizabeth did. Just act like just let him talk and say his thing. Don't argue with his policy positions. Just ignore him. Just act like he's not there. But in terms of socialism, Tom, I was listening to your guests, and I thought, well, if European socialism is so bad, and I looked this up real quick, why is their GDP nearly the same as ours? Right. (laughs) I mean... And in some cases, better. Well, we have significantly more debt, yet they have all of their basics paid for, Mm. I just looked it up. In 2017, the GDP of uh, the European Union was $17.3 trillion. The GDP of the United States was 19.4. That's uh, 12% greater by the United States. But we have, like I say, we don't have everything taken care of. They do. They have free medical care. And that's really what we're talking about here in terms of the socialism issue. Yep. We're talking about whether this is socialized medicine. All these other things that we talk about, whether you want to call it socialized or not. And matter of fact, I called Bernie's uh, office and I said, you know what Bernie should say is, well, is Medicare socialism? And if it is, if they say yes, and they say, well, that's a, that's a socialism that we all like. We don't want to get Nobody wants to get rid of that. Right. So Medicare for all can't be. If they say no, they say that's not. But here's the other thing about Cuba. I wanted to say this, because your other your earlier guest, uh, one thing about the literacy, but I was also reading that the, the infant mortality of the United States is 41% higher 
than in Cuba. Yep. 610 in the United States, 610 deaths per 100,000 live births. Cuba is 430. Yep. Now, um, my buddy Lars Larson said, well, just like your guest said, it's the right-wing response. Oh, the, the communist liars. And I said, well, uh, 430 isn't a very good lie. But even if, there are, if they're lying, 610 by the United States is still not very good. Right. Yeah. And, and you can compare us to any other country. But the fact of the matter yeah. is, and this is something that the communists can't lie about because it's easily checked. The major export of Cuba. Do you know what the major export of Cuba is? Sugarcane, right? Doctors. Doc. Oh, OK. Doctors. They they well, yeah, they exported 24,000 doctors last year all around the world. Well, here's my the question about the medical care is and where I was going to go comparing the infant mortality rate in the United States is the worst 50th among the 50 westernized nations. When you start comparing, France is at about 210, Japan is at 203. But you know who's tops on the list, Tom? Hmm. Our neighbors to the north, Canada, is at 40. 40. So, in other words, maybe the Cubans are lying, but are the Canadians lying? And why are we 15 times worse in infant mortality than our neighbors to the north? Yeah. Amen. This is where, you know, if you just do even the, the most shallow deep dive into reality, into the real statistics, what you discover is that Bernie is just continuing the tradition of FDR and LBJ. There's nothing radical about him at all. It's only radical if you think that the entire country should be run by a handful of very, very wealthy corporations, you know, which is basically what we've had since 1980. Can I riff real quick on what you were saying about how socialism, so to, so to speak, actually stimulates competition. And if we had a single-payer system, that would be what's called a monopsony, not monopoly. Monopsony is many sellers, one buyer, and the buyer dictates the terms. Right. And the way that would create competition is that if Medicare pays, let's say, $1,000 for a procedure, a given procedure, and it costs you 990 to do it, you only make 10 bucks. The way the competition would work is you make more money when you get more efficient and more effective at doing that procedure, and that's what you call competition. That's how you make that's more correct. money. That's correct. Well said. Paul, thanks for the call. Brent in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Brent, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks, Tom. So you spoke with a libertarian economist, which is almost sounds oxymoronic to me, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. They, they do exist a little bit, yes. uh, I guess. The problem that they have is that this saying, I'm not sure to whom it's rightly attributed. I've heard it attributed to all different kinds of people, including Yogi Berra, which I'm pretty sure is not true, is um, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. <laughs> um, whoever, that does that sound like a Yogi Berraism. <laughs> yeah, I would. I, I, it does sound like a yogiism, but I, I would find that hard to believe. But I have heard it before. I've seen yeah. it attributed to several different folks. And that is the problem with libertarian economists. Rationalism works. And, and I understand their theory, and they have real concerns that need to be addressed. But empiricism is the other type of thought, and they absolutely disregard it. There is nowhere in practice that their theory has ever worked. It needs to be incorporated into a socialist or communist, I guess, ideology, but it cannot rule any more than a pure communistic can rule. I mean, you have to have some degree of moderation and both sides, and they just absolutely disregard any sort of actual evidence that would that would hold up in a like a scientific experiment. All right. Yeah. And this is why the ultimate question that I always ask libertarians and I frequently ask Charles is please point to one country where your theories work. And they literally can't name one. The closest they can get is Chile, where Pinochet had to kill over 3,800 people that we know about. He probably killed tens of thousands of people in order to do that. Brent, thanks for the call. It's nice to hear from you. Mitchell in Las Vegas. Hey, Mitchell, what's up? How are you doing, Tom? Hey. First of all, I want you to know that the VA is a wonderful system, and it is socialism. The Veterans Administration, yes, it is socialized medicine. Yeah, it's our only wonderful. socialized medicine system in the United States. The government owns the, my, owns the hospitals, and the doctors get a paycheck from the government. That's socialized, my, my socialized second, medicine. My second point is I have a question. Yeah. President Trump, can he be found guilty of treason, according to our attorney general? 
In my opinion, he is guilty of treason. He is giving aid and comfort to an enemy. But, you know, our Attorney General, Bill Barr, is just fine with that. He's, he's a believer in the unitary executive theory, which says that the president basically can do whatever he wants, which is what Trump literally said. He said, Article 2 says I can do whatever I want. He obviously believes that now, and he's got Ginny Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, coming up with an enemies list of people inside his own administration to purge. This is not good. Beth in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Beth, what's on your mind today? Hi, I just wanted to run this by you and see if it's a useful tool for uh, people understanding our our uh, economic system. There are three things necessary for means of production. One is capital, one is raw materials, and one is people, labor. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that in capitalism, by its very nature, it just elevates money to be the most important part of it of the um, of the process and socialism would be would be focused more on people and i guess maybe you could say that uh, some indigenous uh, economies so to speak have um, have the raw materials the the wealth the health of the environment as their uh, main focus yeah. what do you think about that is a way of looking at things. I think it's a great way to look at it. I, w I would add a fourth component, and that's technology. Whether whether you're making uh, arrowheads out of flint by using another rock to, to chip it out, or whether you're building baseball bats using a lathe, you have to have some sort of technology to, uh, or a, you know, a knife to whittle something, or a, a paintbrush to make some paint. You have to have some sort of technology in order to produce those goods from those raw materials using that human labor. And I think, frankly, Abraham Lincoln was right when he said labor is superior to capital because labor precedes mm -hmm. capital. Without labor, capital can do nothing. And Lincoln said that, and he was absolutely right, and I'm still with him on it. Thanks a lot for the call, Beth. That was excellent. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So when you look in the mirror, do you see wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, a large under-eye bags? Would you rather not see them? Imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will even know you're using it. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. It's Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is toward the very end, and it's a chapter titled Transforming Culture Through Politics. Many think it's just to fund tax cuts and subsidies for the rich, that the multimillionaire CEOs who've taken over almost all senior posts in government are just pigs at the trough. And this is a spectacular but ordinary form of self-serving corruption. It all seems so plausible, and there's even a grain of truth to it. But juicy deals for right-wing government insiders and their friends are just a byproduct of the real and deeper war against democracy. The neoconservatives are perf perfectly happy for us to think that they're just opportunists skirting the edges of legality and morality. But this is far more dangerous than simple government corruption. Indeed, the neoconservatives claim to be anti-government. As a leading spokesman for the neocon agenda, Grover Norquist told National Public Radio's Mara Liason in a May 25th, 2001 morning edition interview, quote, I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub, end quote. Without a larger view, the issues of domestic spending, oil, neoconservative power plays in both major parties, the loss of liberties, anti-government rhetoric, and war in the Middle East all seem like separate and unconnected events. They're not. The new conservatives who've seized the Republican Party and who, through the Democratic Leadership Council, are nipping at the heels of the Democratic Party, are not our parents' conservatives. Historic conservatives like Barry Goldwater, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower would be appalled 
although their philosophical roots go back to Alexander Hamilton, who openly argued during the Constitutional Convention that royalty was the best form of government, the neocons have always been kept to the fringe. Indeed, the Reagan-Bush revolution flew in the face of traditional conservative ideals. As John Stockwell notes in his book, The Praetorian Guard, The U.S. Role in the New World Order, Reagan-Bush were proud of their contempt for their concerns of environmentalists, with Reagan once saying, if you've seen one Redwood, you've seen them all. Their Department of the Interior under James Watt sold off minerals and forests to campaign contributors at fire sale prices, and their EPA in many cases moved from prosecuting corporate polluters to legitimizing and protecting them under the guise of regulation. Although James Madison wrote in 1792 that an important role of government was to promote a strong middle class, quote, by the silent operation of the laws, which without, with, without violating the rights of property, reduce extreme wealth toward a state of mediocrity and raise extreme indigence toward a state of comfort, end of quote from James Madison. That was not a sentiment shared by those in the Reagan-Bush revolution. Instead, Reagan, Reagan raised taxes on the middle class and working people while cutting taxes by more than 60% for the most wealthy in America. At the same time, he bragged that he'd eliminated more than 1,000 programs for poor people and even proposed that poor school, school children should be content with ketchup as their daily vegetable. At the same time, the Reagan-Bush administration and later the George W. Bush administration worked hard to roll back the very individual liberties that America's founders had fought and died for. Dwight Eisenhower left office warning Americans about the dangers of the concentration of power resulting from corporations getting into bed with the military. But the Reagan-Bush and W. Bush administrations openly embraced these corporate powers, inviting them into the halls of governance and hungrily sucking at the teat of their campaign contributions. In the past, those promoting what, what is now called the new conservative agenda went by different names. The founders of America knew that for 6,000 years, civilized human beings had been ruled by one of three groups, kings, theocrats, or feudal lords. Kings held power by virtue of the threat of violence and continual warfare. Theocrats and popes held power by the people's fear of a god or gods, and feudal lords by wealth and the power that comes from throwing average people into poverty. The new idea of our founders in 1776 was to throw off all three of these historic tyrannies and replace them with a fourth way, the people being ruled by themselves, a government that derived its legitimacy and continuing existence solely from the approval of its citizens. Government of, by, and for we the people, they called it, a constitutional Republican democracy. What we are seeing now in the conservative agenda is nothing less than an attempt to overthrow Republican democracy and replace it with a worldwide feudal state. The last time this happened, the feudalists took over a monarchy in then North America. In December 1600, Queen Elizabeth I chartered the East India Company, ultimately leading to a corporate takeover of the Americas for the colonists that ended with the Boston Tea Party and three years later, the American Revolution. The corporate state partnership of the East India Company in the UK went on to then to conquer India, but eventually disintegrated as the British Empire faded and the British government, along with most of Western Europe, embraced somewhat more Jeffersonian forms of democracy. Conservatism raised its head again in the 20th century, revived by Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini. The Italian dictator even used the word corporatism to describe it, and then later renamed it as fascism, a word defined by the American uh, Heritage Dictionary as, quote, a system of government that exercises a dictatorship of the extreme right, typically through the merging of state and business leadership together with belligerent nationalism. The book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Mark in Portland, Oregon, listening on Sirius XM. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Just a quick question. I, I'm more statement. I think uh, Bernie should always invoke FDR in his speeches because he is an I FDR agree. Democrat. I agree. And uh, the, the more he can say FDR in his responses, people get it. I mean, people know what Social Security is about. They know how good it is. And... Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that if, uh, if, if, if there could be a 30-second spot, national spot, that just says, what is democratic socialism? And then have them go blank by blank, real simple, but real easy to understand, and just blanket the national consciousness of what is democratic socialism? I mean, that needs to be out there in front so that he's not going to get attacked by, you know, a, a Putin puppet. Yeah. 
and uh, you know that's that really needs to be out in the forefront of. of well, this, up to this point, the the full weight of the Democratic Party and all the various uh, uh, groups associated with it has not been brought to bear to help or hurt any one particular candidate. If, you know, if Bernie is the the party's nominee, and I think right now there's a, a at least a 50-50 chance he will be, um, which is amazing, uh, given you know where the where the party went after Clinton in '92. Uh, if Bernie is the nominee, that full force, all that weight of, of all these other organizations, I don't think they're going to sit the election out. You know, even if they don't want Bernie's Medicare for all, uh, you know, put him in the White House and then fight it in the legislature. That's what they're going to do, in my opinion. I think that's what they have to do. So, so let's wait and see. But I agree with you. Bernie needs to say FDR as often as he possibly can. Dave in Stillicon, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Any discussion about what socialism is or isn't, I think we need to take a look at, well, hey, vulture banks versus credit unions, mm -hmm. credit unions, cooperatives. Richard Wolf has been doing a great job about taking another look about what socialism is and isn't. And uh, cooperatives, that's huge. And, you know, like, for example, in, uh, in Germany, 850 local cooperatives control uh, a lot of, most of the energy that powers the country. Mm -hmm. Most of them, and where they get the financing from, from credit unions. Yep. Yeah, so... You need I, I, I'm with you, Dave. You said, a very, you said it very well, and if you've got your money in, in a bank, particularly in one of the big banks, I strongly encourage you to get it out and put it I'm into... In put it into a credit union. Credit unions are great, and you become a, actually a member. You can even run for the board. David in Seattle, listening to KBCS. Hey, David, what's up? I have never in my lifetime seen any government anywhere in the world try so hard to, to piss people off. It's almost like they're actually itching for a fight, and they're trying to provoke us to do something. They what are. do you think? Yeah, they are. You know, Donald Trump is trying to tear America apart. He's tearing the federal government apart. I think he, he's doing that for, for his own personal reasons. He's helping out autocrats in other countries where he has Trump properties or wants to have Trump properties or autocrats who have uh, for whom he's been laundering money for years and years. And that he is, he, you know, he's using this as a way of, of tearing apart the American electorate. I'm completely with you. And I think it's, uh, it's mind boggling, frankly. But, you know, that's that's what it is. Carol in Clinton, Illinois. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Well, I want to know why in these debates they are really missing the whole issue, which is do you want an authoritarian government that will go into a dictatorship or do you want a real republic that's a democracy? Yeah. And what are you losing if you choose the authoritarian, which will eventually, Trump will be a dictator. Yes, I agree. What are we gaining if we stay in a democracy? Let's not argue about, do you want Medicare for all? You won't have that choice later on. Yeah, or it's not impossible that you end up with an authoritarian dictator who does things that people like. I mean, Hitler bit, built the Autobahn and started the Volkswagen, and people loved him for it. Uh, in 1937, Hitler was the most popular politician in the world. It's why he was in the cover of Time magazine that year. And then, of course, he invaded Poland, and that was the beginning of the end for everything. So, uh, you know, but, but the, these authoritarian tendencies that, that we are seeing with Donald Trump right now and that I am nervous about with Mayor Bloomberg are something that we all need to have on our radar screens. Curtis in Chicago. Hey, Curtis, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to uh, corroborate what you said. You know, I had a client who years ago who went down to finish her antiviral studies and getting her PhD in immunology, and she specifically went to Cuba in order to finish her studies because, as you said, they export and they are expert in that. And having been there, it occurred to me that, you know, there's a big stark contrast between need and want. Mm -hmm. And all the basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs were met. Um, food, clothing, shelter, education, everything else. Certainly there were some creature comforts that people don't enjoy there. But in terms of not being in the rat race, as it were, to have those basic needs met, it was fantastic. And as an African-American man, it was the first time, having traveled to Central America and Asia, 
that I personally experienced bearing witness to a caste system based on race. So it may not be perfect, but in my experience, it was liberating. Yeah, I, I and and uh, Louise and I had the same a similar experience. I mean, that racism is pretty much everywhere, but uh, in Cuba, they really do not tolerate it. They absolutely don't tolerate yep. it, and they have created a culture there that is uh, transracial. I guess I, I don't know what the appropriate word would be, but but you know, anti-racist certainly, and that's a good thing. Plus, as you said, the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy of needs: if you get sick, you are taken care of; if you if if you are young, you are educated; if you if you are hungry, you are given food; if you're if you're uh, in need of shelter, you are giving housing. It's just that simple. And this is what Franklin Roosevelt proposed in his second Bill of Rights. Uh, speech in 1946, or maybe it was 45. Curtis, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you, and and thanks for listening to WCPT. And thank you all for being with us today. What a fascinating day. It's going to be a great day tomorrow. Tune back in. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It doesn't magically fall out of the sky. It's something that requires hard work from you and me, all of us. So get out there, get active, tag your it, and tell your friends how to find good progressive media. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.